Just a couple quick notes before we begin. First, You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies is made possible with your support. Thank you so much to everybody who supports us at patreon.com slash you are good. If you're one of those folks, thank you. Thank you so much. Our Patreon supporters get a couple extra conversations a month. We should have one coming out this week, so keep an eye out for that if you're a supporter there at patreon.com slash you are good. And thank you, of course, to uh, our fine supporters at Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K Factory. Knack Factory is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine, though it does work throughout these here United States. If uh, you need video produced, if you need the content made, get in touch with the fine folks at Knack Factory. Soon, I should say, uh, opening an office in Nashville, Tennessee. Every week we put out a playlist to accompany uh, the episode that comes out. We have one this week. Uh, They are playlists inspired by our conversations about the movies and inspired by the movies themselves. Uh, This week's uh, is a lot of fun. Let me look at what shows up in the Lost Boys one. I actually don't know right now. So this is going to be a real time surprise with you, my friends. Um, We have Blue Lamp by Stevie Nicks. That's awesome. There's usually always a Stevie song if uh, Sarah is involved. We have... uh, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, Nothing Lasts Forever. That's a that's a Sarah contribution. We have The Seduction, the love theme from American Gigolo. <laughs> Man, I love her so much. And we have Square Pegs by The Waitresses. A lot of other great songs. So, so check out the show notes for a link to that playlist. It'll have some contributions by yours truly as well. If you don't know where we are on social media, we're at Instagram dot com slash uh, you are good pod and we're at twitter dot com slash you are good pod you can find us there find us say hello introduce yourself if you have not already it'd be nice to hear from you all right i think that's all we need to know before we dive into this episode this is just sarah and me your co-host alex steed and i, I love these conversations where it's just us they flow freely because we've been friends for years and uh we go all over the place so enjoy thank you all right let's do this let's uh let's cry little sister <laughs> Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. I don't know what voice that was. That was something. Where were you, what were you channeling? Carol Channing, probably. But also, <laughs> I can't say hello the way Kiefer Sutherland does in The Lost Boys because that would involve me going like this. That's uh, a good look. Hello, Michael. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> You'll never die, Michael, but you must Live- feed. <laughs> Michael, 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 Michael. We talked a bit at the beginning of the stretch of October about how we're doing um, like spooky movies, not scary movies. Yeah, that's an important distinction. This movie is spooky for sure. It's not scary. It's the Lost Boys. If I had seen this when I was 10, I think I would have also needed to sleep in my mom's bed like Corey Haim does in this movie but like yes for an adult it's it's just super fun it's super fun we get spooky um and we also just try to pick apart and understand what the fuck is going on in the lost boys (laughs) and the answer to that is so many things so many things that bring us joy and the twist is that the real vampires were hollywood's unscrupulous child actor brokers all along the end this conversation is funny because it's like joy 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 and then we're like hollywood's dark man yeah that matches to me the experience of watching this movie because you're like "Oh, oh i love this part i love this opening i love this song i love this line oh Corey Haim's so wonderful in this and then you look at Corey Haim's Wicked
Wikipedia page and then you just feel really sad yeah. as you're sitting there watching the Frog Brothers collect communion water. That's not a thing. Communion water. Holy water. <laughs> it's like the runoff from communion. Corey <laughs> <laughs> Haim is no longer with us. If he were here, then yeah, I would hope that he would be doing all kinds of fun stuff and just having a nice time. Just my fantasy is Corey Haim, like sitting over there having like a, a nice like fall drink, being like, oh, this is a nice day. It's pretty pleasant. I might go sweater shopping later. <laughs> just having kind of a chill time. I'm just having chill times. Yeah. Uh, Corey Feldman is around. Yeah, I hope he's doing that. Corey Feldman has like the tricky responsibility of being a person who is speaking up on Corey Haim's behalf of being like, this is a person who got done dirty. Things were bad, obviously, for for his side. And then also has to defend Michael Jackson in retrospect because they were friends. Mm. Like that seems like a very complicated legacy to have to maintain for your entire life. It's so hard. The takeaway from this whole episode is that like, it's hard to be a Corey. No one suspected that at the time. Like surely in the eighties life of anyone in the world seemed easiest for a Corey. And yet it was not. And that's our lesson. Yeah. Yeah. No one was like, I think this will be a real Shakespearean tragedy where a lot of people die. And then the survivors are left feeling like they're going to spend the rest of their lives figuring out what they saw. Oh yeah. That's such a good point is like, there's often a lot of low hanging, jokes with regard to Corey Feldman in a lot of ways for reasons. If you think about what it must have been like to have seen all that stuff and have been there Mm -hmm. and have been a 15 year old that adults gave cocaine to while your friend was getting abused, how else would you be? How else would you be? You're in the era of the satanic panic, which this movie is kind of about. You're like, no one could be more hidden in plain sight than a kid whose like face is all over posters. Yeah. Wow. Very well put. What should people listen to, uh, listen for in this episode? Do you think? Listen for a defense of Joel Schumacher, which comes from the heart It does for both of us, I think. And us just trying to somehow make the correct space for the wild tonal whipsaws of this episode, because we're talking about a movie that brings us a lot of joy and that our background knowledge about brings us a lot of sadness. Yeah. And listen for the knowledge that I genuinely enjoy all the cheesy music in this movie in a way that Alex <laughs> did not suspect anyone could. Honestly, because we, we do the we do the playlist that's inspired by each of the episodes. Find it in the show notes. And your your breadth of musical knowledge and appreciation shocks me every single week. So I guess I wasn't necessarily surprised, but I was definitely heartened to know how into the soundtrack that you are. And how often I listen to Cry Little Sister. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, guess what? What? Thou shall not kill. <laughs> Thou shall not cry, die. I really don't know. I feel like this song is like a spiritual sequel to White Wedding by Billy Idol. Is it? Is it Roger Daltrey who sings that song? It's so bad. <laughs> did, did you say bad? I mean, it, like in the context of this movie, it's fantastic. But like, I can't imagine yes. just like putting that on as a jam. Like you just driving. Around. Okay, first of all, I do that all the time. 
Okay. You know what? I'm a special person. And B, I feel like you've summed up like the thing I was thinking that we needed to discuss in talking about this film and Joel Schumacher, the best of his movies. And I think this is his best movie. Things that would be really ridiculous outside the movie, like somehow totally fucking work in the movie. It's like when you buy clothes on vacation and you're like, I feel great. And then you come home and you're like, why? What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's such a great example. So so we're talking about Cry Little Sister, which apparently is by Gerard McMahon. I don't know if that's all that Gerard got up to, but we did, I think, several songs for this movie. Yeah, we were talking about the Lost Boys and the thing that you just how like Joel Schumacher will do stuff and it'll just work because it's Joel Schumacher. Evidently, he's one of my favorite directors from this era that just like does not know the meaning of the word subtlety does not know it at all doesn't pretend to care about it and i love i really love when he goes off and he goes off so hard in this movie i love that too and i think his most controversial films or his most hated i guess were batman and robin and probably the phantom of the opera oh yeah i haven't seen the phantom of the opera but the problem there seems to be like that he has a very particular sensibility and it's one thing when you're doing an original or, or even like an homage to another work kind of story, like The Incredible Shrinking Woman starring Lily Tomlin, his first film. And it's another thing when you're adapting some of the most beloved intellectual properties of all time. Totally. I, I forgot. I didn't realize that I, I say I forgot. I don't think I ever knew in the first place that he made The Incredible Shrinking Woman. That's a movie more people should see. Yeah. And I love Batman and Robin. That was the first Batman movie. I saw and enjoyed because the Tim Burton movies came out when I was like five. And like, this was not a time when we were overly concerned with skewing all actiony movies towards seven year olds, I think. <laughs> and Batman and Robin is spectacularly campy and funny and kind of homoerotic. And I think that like the Lost Boys has a lot of that DNA in it. And it's just like, I don't know. I just love this movie so much. Do you love this movie so much? <laughs> Yeah, I do. And I, there's so many things I want to talk about. So many things I want to talk about. I look forward to talking about it with someone who loves it. Tell me, though, what is this movie about? <laughs> to, you know, on the surface and underneath things. It's about a town where there are too many damn vampires. <laughs> to zoom out, first of all, this movie is about a family, a single mom, Diane Wiest, and her two kids, played by Jason Patrick, and his character's name is Michael. And I know that because IMDb estimates that you hear his name 118 times. <laughs> and his little brother, whose name I always forget because people don't say it that many times. It's not Alex, but it's something like Alex. It's Corey Haim. Yeah, it's a story about Michael, Corey Haim, and their mom, Diane Wiest, and... We get a little bit of backstory. This is one of several horror paranormal movies of the 80s where everything starts with a woman getting divorced and therefore inviting an alien or some vampires or a killer doll into her life. In the words of her father, she's the only woman uh, he knows who hasn't improved her lot in life by getting divorced. <laughs> yeah, this is before Nicole Brown Simpson. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And, and by just a total aside, this is Diane Weiss. Uh, her, she's just the best always. Like whenever she's on screen in anything, she's fantastic. But this is also her at her hottest, in my personal opinion, as a mom of two boys who's just trying to work at a video store and go on dates. I love you, Diane. Yes. I was thinking that too. I was like, Diane Weiss is so wonderful in this. And she has like such an ethereal, pure hearted quality. 
that uh, is relevant later in the story. Yes, yeah, so they're moving to Santa Carla, California, which is a very thinly veiled version of Santa Cruz, California, to the extent that this is such an iconic, I think, 80s family movie scene. The mom, they're driving in and the mom's like, I know the past year has been rough, but I think you're all are going to really like living in Santa Carla. And then Michael turns around and sees painted on the back of the billboard murder capital of the world, which was a real thing that happened to Santa Cruz. Like it wasn't the murder capital of the world statistically, but it had like some really gnarly crimes in quick succession in the seventies. And it got kind of popularly dubbed that for a while. And I'm sure loves that this movie immortalized that concept way beyond the extent to which people would otherwise remember that. The Chamber of Commerce is very excited about this being part of its legacy forever. And yet this movie also portrays the Santa Cruz boardwalk as the most exciting place in the entire world. So like, <laughs> I don't know, I, I think maybe it evens out. And so we come to this town we've already established before watching these boys arrive. That's the second scene. The very first scene is watching these vampires led by Kiefer Sutherland, who are all dressed like they're in kind of a hair metal band, I would say. How would you describe these outfits? They're in a hair metal band as envisioned by Andrew Lloyd Webber. Yes. There you go. You did it. You nailed it on the first try. We watch them menacingly enter a carousel and then be harassed by a boardwalk cop we know that they attack him and presumably eat him and then we cut to like diane weiss moving her kids to this new town and then basically again like i think atmosphere is as important as story here but the kind of bones that we drape this whole beautiful parade float of a film on are that this family moves to town the two boys in the family are like the coolest possible boy for their respective age categories i think they're supposed to be probably like 13 and 17 Yes. Corey Haim is also treated like a seven-year-old in his family. Yeah, it's very strange. Consistently treated like a fragile baby. <laughs> yes, and he also like has this very childlike sort of joy at his surroundings and like he has like a Medigliani bathrobe which is actually more like a 50 year old choice in a way but there's like an amazing iconic scene of him just like having a bubble bath in the middle of this movie yes totally ain't got a home <laughs> that is exa that's exactly what I'm thinking of that is exactly <laughs> exactly what I'm thinking of is like that he like goes to sleep with his mom at some point because yeah. he's scared like he sleeps in her bed he has to be baby set on a regular basis which is really funny yeah what is the lady's name uh, iris apfel that just like super stylish old lady who has big black rimmed glasses apfel i don't know Corey haim has her fashion sense in this movie <laughs> yes all of his clothes are amazing there's also the interesting double bluff of him having a giant poster of molly ringwald yes and a smaller but still pretty big poster of rob lowe looking very suggestive and joe schumacher was like it's because i directed saint elmo's fire and it's like uh-huh he absolutely looks like he's about to take his dick out between that and how many times his michael just is so close to Corey Ames face in this entire movie he can't talk to him unless his mouth is like one and a half inches away from Corey Ames mouth. yeah it, it reminds me of Newsy's fan fiction I used to read mm. and write as a tween it's very steamy okay and then to speak of the overriding themes of this movie we then are introduced to Jamie Gertz who plays star because basically the, their first night in town 
we've already established the town through the boardwalk. We know Michael has asked a guy if there's jobs around here and the guy goes, nothing legal. <laughs> so in this movie where teens have a wonderful public space to be having adventures in, they go to this giant concert that is like a big concert. I think the poster was like power ballads, power ballads, power ballads played by the greased up sax guy all night long. And then everyone came. Joel Schumacher is horny for a saxophone as evidenced by St. Elmo's Fire in this movie. (laughs) Oh my God. I didn't think of that, but yeah, St. Elmo's Fire also. That's because there's like minutes of that movie, like several minutes of just Rob Lowe totally greased up pretending to play a saxophone like he's going down on it and then in the in the like saint Elmo's fire theme yeah the saxophone comes up in it and like every time the saxophone comes up i imagine we're supposed to imagine rob lowe is in is on screen <laughs> oh that makes sense like how margot tenenbaum is represented by a flute or something yes ex- exactly i thought, just thought that that was his representation so yeah i don't know if like I don't know what Schumacher was hornier for. Was it Rob Lowe or the sax or was it a draw? But either way, we we benefit. We, the audience, benefit. We do. And like, also, I don't want to seem like I'm making fun of the sax guy in this movie, Tim Capello, because you have to see it if you haven't seen it. It's incredibly sexy. Like, it is. <laughs> this is kind of what this whole movie is for me. He's doing something that if I describe it to you from like a sort of ironic millennial perspective, like, oh, this greasy, huge guy with a huge ponytail playing a sax who's super into it. You're like, oh, that sounds kind of cringe, right? And it's like, no, it's beautiful. It's one of the sexiest things ever. <laughs> the thing that I was struck by in watching it this time is how much screen time it gets yeah they keep cutting back to it yeah i think schumacher i think schumacher does like really well is he puts a thing in a movie that again if you described it you're like how would that possibly work and then it just the commitment like this guy is on screen for a long period of time he looks great his vibe is really great and it keeps going in a way where like it seems absurd and then you settle into it and then it seems absurd and then you just accept it yeah and that's what the movie is so this is the scene where michael he sees star who's like this sexy girl who's got like kind of a flowing outfit and long flowing hair. She's got like a real dreamy romance novel quality. And he like sees her during the concert and they make eye contact and then she runs away and he chases her and and he meets the crowd of obviously vampires who she's hanging out with. And then what appears to happen is that the vampires are like, you can sit with us and then like challenge him to like, you know, ride motorcycles with them. Because obviously vampire, this is the only movie I can think of where there's a like, yeah, vampires hang out in a motorcycle gang decision. And like more people could do that. That's pretty fun. They kind of fuck with him and haze him. And after a bunch of various hazing activities, which could just be them being normal jerks and not vampires, they're like, here, drink this blood. And he's like, whatever. I feel like this movie is a metaphor for so many different things. The difficulty of being a single mom and the stuff that you run into is really sort of incredibly played, I think, over the arc of the movie. It's not like front and center, but it's stuff that I notice much more now that I'm, you know, much closer to her age than I am to the kid's age. Mm-hmm. You know, speaking of of atmosphere, atmosphere versus text, Michael just like sees Star, mm-hmm. decides he needs to be with Star. There's no 
evidence about why outside of the fact that she's just like kind of like she's visually compelling they don't have like a they don't have an interaction that makes you go like okay it makes sense that he is fully committed to being into this and then he like stumbles into her friends who are you know who are the vampires and immediately they're trying to recruit him again we don't know why and he's kind of fine with it and we don't know why (laughs) the thing that's so the thing that like makes so much more sense in retrospect to having been like a horny teenager is he's just following what feels good and like he want what he wants to be a part of and what he wants to you know be associated with i guess and like what he's lusting for but i love that there's like no reason what is your take on what michael is after many of the things in this movie that would be flaws in other movies really work here and one of them is that these characters are all very thin by which i i don't mean like their body types i mean <laughs> There's not a lot going on for any of these people. Like all of these characters you're happy to identify with. There's like the lovely mom who's so sweet and pretty. And there's the really cool little brother who has lots of funny, cute catchphrases and is a big smart ass and also like really deals with the situation with a lot of aplomb. There's like the incredibly gorgeous older brother who is motivated by drives of which this movie cannot directly speak. And... (laughs) Just everyone is attractive and not that flawed. And the evil people, they're not evil in like a depressing real life way. They're just like sexy evil. And a hypothesis I want to put forth is that this is the kind of casting and writing choice that encourages slash fan fiction to be written. Because you have Jason Patrick, who, as you've remarked on before in a previous episode, is like an unbelievably beautiful young man. Just gorgeous gorgeous he is the kind of person for whom oscar wilde would happily go to prison exactly (laughs) (laughs) and me Um, (laughs) but this movie is very special because it's like i would love to see more awkward looking and realistic teens in movies but i also think it's nice sometimes to like have someone so gorgeous Among other things, it just reminds us of like the power of youth, Yeah, what youth means to people. And I looked it up and Joel Schumacher was like 48 when he was making this. So he's like, he's of the waist Herman age. And like this movie totally feels like it's sort of youth looked at from afar. You know, I think you can feel that in this movie too. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And like that, that's like part of the drive. Right. And the poster of Jim Morrison at the vampire hangout, like just in the fact that we're in California, like the land of eternal youth and beauty and uh, maybe something violent will happen if you can't have it. But in terms of casting, you have Jason Patrick and then as the leader of the vampires, David, which is such an anticlimactic name for this character. (laughs) We have Kiefer Sutherland, who is like, when he gets on the carousel at the start of this movie, he has this smirk that is like, what is the smirk, Alex? I think it's just like, uh, you're just like, oh my God, this vampire can just do whatever he wants. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a mix between like being like mysterious and cunning and also him letting you know he just fucked your sister. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's like the look he has when he comes out to get a sunny D. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> exactly.
exactly. It's so interesting that like he is the leader. It like really speaks to Kiefer Sutherland's just like batshit 80s charisma that he is the leader of mm-hmm. these vampires. Because I think like objectively, aesthetically, and again, objectively, like he's the least physically attractive of the vampires he's the head of but his energy is incredible like his energy is is terrifying while also kind of sexy and i think that that like was his whole vibe in the 80s is like yes is um you know terrifyingly sexy (laughs) or sex sexily terrifying he's got the vibe of that like kid in your school who like was working at steppenwolf before you graduated (laughs) and you're like what it's like having coffee with Malkovich. <laughs> He's like 50. Yeah, I was watching this. I was like, it's so cool that Kiefer Sutherland is playing a teen, even though he's probably like 27. He was 17 when they made this movie. Oh, that's wild. Like, that's, it's incredible to me that he carries himself with this much like conviction and charisma. I believe him as someone who could be hundreds of years old, too, is the thing. This is not something that Robert Pattinson ever achieved. Yeah, no. Nor was he given the material to do so with, to be fair. Agreed. I also love Alex Winter in this movie because three of the four vampires are menacingly attractive. Yes. And then Alex Winter is beautiful so sweet-faced and i mean he looks very feminine they look feminine in presentation with regard to like sort of like what would have been considered feminine versus masculine in the mid 80s but all of winter's features are extraordinarily feminine and i love that dynamic in a big way they never really like comment on it i thought that that was like a fascinating choice and it's interesting to see it's interesting to see him in that role especially now i mean i feel like of all of the people with the exception of obviously kefir sutherland like he's also the most accomplished person in this cast with the exception of i guess edward herman who is uh, as mm. carolyn pointed out grandpa gilmore yes and also a really good audiobook narrator listen to the tommy knockers oh is that edward herman oh yeah you've mentioned this yeah i bet i bet he's fantastic okay so we have jason patrick playing michael we have Kiefer sutherland playing david and then we have jamie gertz playing star here's my thoughts on this I think Jamie Kurtz is wonderful and gorgeous and so talented and so funny, which you know if you've seen her work on Seinfeld or Square Pegs. But she is not a like broodingly sweating sex type of person. And I guess more to the point, she's not a teen boy. (laughs) And I feel like this movie forgets about her 15 times. Oh, definitely. Or maybe it's just that I forget about her because I feel like she's brought in as a character. And like Sarah Jacobs and Newsies, you're like, I know I'm a tween girl, but like, why is this girl here if not to distract me from the fact that this movie is about Jason Patrick and Kiefer Sutherland staring at each other? Yes. Fighting and wrestling. And she can't compete with the chemistry that they have. She just can't. And like, and she doesn't have the space to. And this movie has one of those thrown in sex scenes like in Top Gun. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Carolyn couldn't believe that that was happening. She's like, are they having sex? Is this really what's happening? Yeah. What did, what did Carolyn think about Star? No real thoughts about Star, but just like that that sex scene was, it was like, we have to have a sex scene. You know, everyone in this movie is androgynous in some way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she is as masculine a lost boy as they are feminine. And I feel like, again, it's like one of those 
reasons why it's okay. Michael's going to fall in love with her because it's a woman and because this is a movie in the mid 80s. But like in a lot of ways, it's like, well, she can he can fall in love with her. He can fall in love with David, who he very clearly is in love with and wants to be a part of and want to wants to be a part of his crew, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, this movie is a little bit like Goodfellas. Yeah, yeah. explain that. Like one of the things I love about Goodfellas, A, Scorsese, like Joe Schumacher, I think, really appreciates male beauty. Like, I think you can see that in a lot of his movies and you can see that in how the camera looks at Ray Liotta and even at all the other men in this movie. Like this is really especially like very clearly in about the opening 15 minutes where we see Henry Hill's childhood. There's a line at the very beginning about, you know, like the iconic, I always wanted to be a gangster thing. And then immediately after he's talking about watching the mobsters at the cab stand as a kid and saying, I knew I wanted to be a part of them, which is like almost erotic to me. I'm really busting out my grad school language here, yeah. right? It's like, <laughs> like you want family, you want connection, you, you want the money, you want the power, like you want to be intimate with all these guys who are going to teach you all these cons and like bring you up in a culture and value you and be loved the longing as a man to be a part of other men. And that can be erotic. And it can also just be like a need for community and need to be part of a team. You know, people crave that. Right. And we get this, we get this commentary for there are these vampire boys. They are the lost boys. This movie also spends a lot of time looking at missing child posters. Like this feels also like a response to 80s stranger danger and even satanic panic. Well, yeah, definitely, because they're disappearing to the occult, like to occult murders, basically. Be eaten by vampires. The reveal is that Max, who owns a video store. I mean, there's another tie into stranger danger, excuse me, to like satanic panic occult stuff because, you know, he was probably selling a bunch of horror movies. Oh, no. He... It turns out to be the head vampire. He's been courting Lucy, who's uh, Diane Weist's single mom character. And he goes in this whole spiel at the end that he wanted to like join their families. He's got these boys. She's got her boys. He says straight up that like boys need a father. You know, once he says it, like that really becomes the thesis of the motivation for all of these boys. Cause Michael's behavior really makes sense. And if you put it in the context of everything you just said, where like he's mm -hmm. chasing after these things to be a part of, like to be a part of this group, to be with this woman, to just to belong to something. It makes sense that like he showed up, he wants to belong. He's willing to engage in all this risky behavior because like we don't know we don't know where their dad is he's just not he's just not present and grandpa is a lot of fun with his weed growing and uh his shenanigans but you know he's not exactly a dad type so these you know these kids are like longing these kids are longing for a dad in particular michael right and it's funny too because like i never know whose movie this is this is michael's story but it's also Corey hayden's story but Corey hayden's a supporting character yeah it's wayward boys uh without a dad but then also the kind of shitty dad you will fall into and get get lured in by if you have that void. Yeah. I don't know how true it is that boys need a <laughs> boys need a father as, as as Max says, but that can easily become something that becomes exploited, which we see is what Max is ultimately doing. Right. You know, Max is exploiting these kids' needs to run a small a, a very small gang of vampires. We don't know what his overall objective is. We don't know what his goals are. We don't know what he's trying to accomplish. But we do know he has four boys who are uh, dedicated to being his vampire servants. 
Yeah. And it's like, do they spend a lot of time together? Like, I mean, they, <laughs> what's their home life? Do they, is this why they need this family? So they can like figure out how to socialize. I don't know. But yeah, it, you know, this movie has twists. Like, I think it really deserves credit for that. There's two big twists that I can think of that happen one right after the other. Okay. Three, actually. Okay. Michael sees Star. He chases her. He bonds with her friends. He starts turning into a vampire. His brother's like, my own brother, a goddamn vampire. A goddamn shit-sucking vampire. (laughs) Which is like, no, no, you're confused about what vampires are. (laughs) (laughs) And at the same time, their mom, Lucy, is working at the video store and dating this fuddy-duddy Edward Herman. And Corey Haim befriends the Frog Brothers, played by Corey Feldman and... Another kid, I'm so sorry, their names are Edgar and Alan Frog, and they work in a comic book store that is owned by their hippie burnout constantly asleep parents, just like Otto's parents and Repo Man, just totally spaced out hippies. And they are also local vampire hunters who help guide Corey Haim through figuring out who's leading this ring of vampires, basically. So they initially suspect Max, and then the movie kind of rules that out for you because you know they have him over for dinner his reflection shows up in a mirror he can eat garlic without it being dangerous to him apparently and it's like oh man they were right and we all and the audience is like but Kiefer Sutherland is the main vampire you silly kids so then we have our first twist which is that we think that these vampires have just randomly wanted to make Jason Patrick a vampire too on the first night of hanging out with him and stars like, no, they were grooming you to be the first. Wait, actually, I'm confused. Is he supposed to be the first person she eats or the first vampire she turns into a vampire? I don't know. Because she's like, you were supposed to be my first. I think that she was supposed she was supposed to convert him. So it is like they're Jehovah's Witnesses or something. Yeah. And I don't know if that's true, but like it makes it make a little more sense. Like that she's bait. Yeah. Like, you know, don't get me wrong. Like Jamie Gertz is very attractive, but they're... Yeah isn't a ton of logic behind why like Michael just again outside of horny teenage boy stuff like it doesn't make any sense why Michael just drops all of his plans and is transfixed and just wants to be a part of this group like I feel like there's some there maybe there's some sort of magic going on here right or maybe it's the magic of Kiefer Sutherland and his charisma that's certainly what it becomes immediately okay so that's like twist one I don't know. It's almost like a she's all that twist that like this wasn't a total, totally organic thing, but he's still wanted by them and they still want him to become a vampire. So I don't know. It's that's all good, I guess. And then twist two is that the video store guy, Edward Herman, actually was the head vampire all along. And that's I feel like where this movie's agnosticism on the question of like, should we terrorize single moms comes in because it's like it had to have been a really intuitive premise for audiences in 1987 that if you get divorced and are a single mom with adolescent boys, then you are opening the door to vampires. Different directors like say different things about what they think the door of divorce opens because like for Steven Spielberg, I feel like the message is if your parents get divorced, then a lovely alien will come and be your new dad (laughs) and this one is a little darker but then like the real danger is not these other teen boys and these cool hip kind of queer reading vampires it's 
the normal kind of Reaganite blood-sucking Brady Bunch dad that you really want to avoid. But then the person who saves them from that guy is Diane Weist's dad, grandpa, <laughs> which is like an amazing scene. He like he's been pounding in fence posts this whole movie. And we realize now that like he has giant vampire stakes and he has a vampire hunting car and he just charges right in through a wall and stakes Edward Herman. And then he gets to close the movie with the line. One thing I never could stomach about living in Santa Carla, all the damn vampires. And that's just it. And that's just how (laughs) the end (laughs) in a lot of our conversations about horror, about 80s horror in particular, we talk largely about how everyone thinks that like it's the kids that are fucked up in one way or another. And really, it's just like inept, you know, not necessarily like inept parents, but like the generation. It's it's those kids parents generation that is fucked in one way or another. And in this case, it's very specific about the kind of parent that is. Mm-hmm. And he's not even a parent. Like he's just like a guy who's amassing a vampire army. It's the Dragonite dad character who ends up being the evil prick. Yeah. I love that it is an old hippie that does him in. I don't know what that's ultimately saying, but I, yeah. I it's, it's, it's optimistic. I would call him a mountain man. Yeah, mountain man. <laughs> yeah. It's much more optimistic than the, um, the 90s turned out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was going to say except for the Unabomber, but like that didn't turn out well. Yeah. <laughs> what ended up happening was... Was the Democrats just like assumed Reaganite policy and called it progressive <laughs> and dressed it up like grandpa so that tech companies could make billions? Like that's what happened instead. But it's nice to believe that the mountain man ended up prevailing. <laughs> and also, like, I take the message of this movie. One of them is like being a single mom is better than having a lot of men that are out there become your kid's dad. So, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> You know, I really feel for her, right? Because like all she wants to do is like go on a normal date. And enjoy Edward Herman, who is like, if he wasn't a vampire who had weird sort of family molding ideas would be very sexy and cute. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And and uh, that's all she wants. She wants this. She's going to get a nice little bit of attention. She just moved across the country. I just did, too. And I know how exhausting it is. And then she keeps getting interrupted. And then she's ultimately interrupted by realizing that this guy is a uh, shit sucking vampire. And that is a bummer. Like you just want her to have a nice time. It's hard to be a woman dating in the 80s. I feel like there must have been a line cut from Mary Kay Place's little speech in the big show. Like either... They've just ended a relationship with the most wonderful woman or they're a vampire trying to create an ad hoc vampire family (laughs) to rule over the Santa Carla boardwalk. I've seen it all. Yeah. Maybe the realization here is that um, you don't need a dude uh, because it might turn out to be a guy who's trying to make you into a weird vampire orgy. Yeah. Another connection to kind of what the the awfulness of what the 90s leaned hard into, I think, is the idea that like I can think of some 80s media and movies that are like pro single mom. But all the ones I can think of, the moms are white and middle aged and like if not well off, then like at least, you know, I mean, like the plot of this movie is that they're kind of hard up financially, but like they do have a big mountain man 
home place to to go to when things get rough. And it's very nice, despite all the taxidermy. Yeah, I'd love to live in that house. It's a gorgeous house. Oh, yeah. What's playing against it is that there's no TV, which means no MTV. But I think that there's, you know, you could have a good time in that house regardless. If you read the TV guide, you don't have to watch the TV. <laughs> I do, I want to return. So I want to return to, you know, how Jamie Gertz fits into this movie, how everyone kind of looks and feels the fact that this is this movie was very much made. I would feel a little uncomfortable, be, you know, talking about a director's sexuality and being like, there's some gay gaze here. If it weren't mm -hmm. Joel Schumacher, like Joel Schumacher's like whole right. fucking uh, admitted thing was gay gaze. <laughs> yes. And to be clear, not like G-A-Y-G-A-Y-S, but G-A-Y-G-A-Z-E. Yes. And then there's like the male gaze in film theory, which is or just in like life theory, which is also confusing if you don't see it written down. <laughs> this movie also ha it has male gaze and male gaze. It didn't strike me that that would be, yeah, it just sounds like gaze gaze. <laughs> I used to kind of do film theory and like, I remember just realizing that I needed to be spelling some stuff occasionally. Yeah. I, I think that, yes, Jamie Gertz's character gets short shrift as a love interest, but this movie feels like more than anything else is it's, it was like, Hey, you know what? If straight people like this movie, cool. Uh, however, <laughs> 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 this is for another crowd. Like it doesn't have like thematic necessarily like gay, like gay thematic vibes. Like that. there, there aren't you know, sort of like, there isn't like a deeper exploration. It's just like, here's a bunch of boys who love and fight each other and want to be a part of each other and want to drink each other's fluids. And then there's also, there's a, yeah, there's a lady. Sure. Yeah. There's definitely a lady in this movie. You can care about that if you want. And you're just like, what is Star's life like when we're not seeing her on camera? Like, does she clean? Is she the one who has to get Chinese food for them? Like, what is why? Like, why did they obtain her? I know that this kid is is missing because we see the kid on a milk carton. Yeah. Laddie. Is Laddie hers or is she just responsible for Laddie? I think he's just a lost kid. And I think probably the vampires were like, Star wants a, a cute kid. Let's grab one for her or something like that. Well, it's nice in its way. They tried. It's a failing on developing Star as a character. If its actual intention was to have a, like a an actual three-dimensional relationship i in some way i feel like a studio was like we need guys guys have you seen what this movie looks like without a love interest we need to have a love interest in this movie holy shit this is the gayest teen <laughs> horror movie we've ever made how are we gonna get butts in the seats and that's saying something guys remember the one last year and the year before that <laughs> We need to get a lady. I don't care if that lady looks exactly like one of the boys that's already in the movie. Just get her. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, what's that? The girl from Square Pegs is available. <laughs> All right. We've turned this puppy around. Put her in the movie. I also just read on Wikipedia that as a child actor, Gertz was in one episode of Different Strokes along with Andrew Dice Clay. <laughs> There's there are very few more 80s statements that can be made than Jamie Gertz was in a different strokes with Andrew Dice Clay. Jamie Gertz just like is the 80s. And like, I, I don't want this to be like an office kind of like Hillary Swank is not hot kind of a thing. Like Jamie Gertz is hot. This movie yes. just doesn't care. 
No doubt. Exactly. Exactly. So Schumacher takes credit for it. This movie created the Corys. Well, it didn't it didn't create them. It just merged them into a single Cory, which which was an advancement. But they yeah, they needed to be brought together. I love how bold Joel Schumacher is like Joel Schumacher doesn't mince words. He takes credit. I like a lot about him. He talks about he talks about having I think he had sex with like 20,000 people. I love Joel Schumacher so much. Wow. But like what speaking of the Corys, you know, you texted me, you know, I think something about sweet Corey while you were watching this. Yeah. Putting aside Corey Feldman's voice in this movie, his frog voice. Yes. Okay. (laughs) Can you just comment on the Corys and what strikes you what struck you while watching this? Yeah, I mean, I don't know who first coined this term, the concept of the Corys, like obviously two of them together makes you think of it pretty easily. But like, this also makes me think of the Cory hotline from The Simpsons. Do you remember that? Um, no, I don't. Lisa accidentally spent a ton of money by spending too much time on the Cory hotline, which is again, just kind of I think Cory became for a while the archetypal name of like, the idea of a teen kind of tiger beat heartthrob. The Corey hotline, when we hear it on the show, is like, here are some words that rhyme with Corey. Story, allegory. Uh, I can't think of a third one, hmm. but Corey could. <laughs> it's just like listening to Corey just say anything. And I feel like the Corys in this are kind of like Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. They're just like two slightly different, but essentially the same flavors of teen heartthrob that are like offered as a buffet for tweens who need teen boy heartthrobs. I mean, like, I like that this movie also feels really geared toward offering as many crush figures as possible. And there's something for, like, the younger siblings who are being taken to this movie or sneaking into it because I think it was R-rated. I think this movie believes that, like, being a teen and, like, having a big crush on characters in movies is very wholesome and everyone should do it as much as possible. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And because and the Corys were like their success initially. And then I feel like their tragedy came from the fact that they were like monetized for having young teen sex appeal. And like that gets weird immediately. Yeah. So I, I don't know how specific Corey Haim's sexual abuse claims ever were. But Feldman said that Haim was sexually assaulted on the set of The Lost Boys, though they were specific that it was not uh, Schumacher. And Feldman, I guess, was given cocaine by an adult for the first time on The Lost Boys filming. Which is horrifying when you watch the movie and you're like, this kid is, I mean, oh my God, he's he's a baby. When Schumacher died, Feldman said Schumacher tried to like actually be proactive in you know stopping him from doing cocaine. He said that he noticed that mm-hmm. he was high, fired him from the movie, kind of explained the rationale, and then ended up rehiring him. And he said that he stayed he stayed away from cocaine for a year year after that and then unfortunately Mm. got back into it so Mm -hmm. Schumacher is so bold in a lot of ways and flamboyant and like is is such a specific character but like that's not a thing you necessarily think of especially when you think of the fact that like this did help launch them into a specific kind of stardom that tied into Corey Haim's downfall in a lot of ways and I you know I can't speak to where Corey Feldman is now but to think of him actually being like a caring and someone who intervened in trying to trying to make sure that they were not descending is kind of lovely to think about, especially in the context of where things went. Yeah. And then the kind of like layers of what's happening in this movie, you know, it just feels, it feels like there's a lot there, right? Because this movie is about a, how the world is dangerous for young people 
And that's one of the like things that is most on people's minds in the 80s. And as we see, like it, it's always as dangerous as we think it is, but like for often somewhat different reasons than we're ready to identify at the time. Right. Uh, Corey, we're thinking of you, Corey. Yeah. I feel like you think about Corey Haim a lot. Like, can you talk about his story? I don't know the ins and outs of Corey Haim's story, um, but he is a person who uh, my childhood was in the 80s and in the early 90s. And so between like movies that were out in real time and then movies that were always on reruns or being rerun on TV, like the Corys were around all the time in my childhood and just watching his descent over time with drugs and then sort of like an early death. He died at the same age I am now. That's so just incredibly sad Mm -hmm. to think about and to know that it was tied into, I I think it was either him or Corey Feldman who spoke to him having been raped, I think at at 11, Mm -hmm. Corey Haim. And then just like what seemed like a pretty consistent feeding frenzy on him in particular in Hollywood circles. It's just, it's just so devastating to think about. Mm -hmm. I loved him a lot. I loved I loved the movie Lucas in a really big way where he was like an he was like an adorable tiny football player who played alongside uh Charlie Sheen. It was really fantastic. Like I just he was around, he was huge when I was a kid. And then to watch him die early and then to know a lot of the things that ended up playing into that, it's just it's heartbreaking. Yeah. As I was watching this this time, I was kind of reading Corey Haim's Wikipedia page during the final act. Like, it makes you feel confused about what it means to consume this media and what it means to consume media. Like, even if you are a fellow kid at the time that is centered on, you know, in some unavoidable way, the commodification of children. Yeah, absolutely. It does make it confusing. Like, it's it's a thing that I still love. I love a whole lot. It's weird as fuck. <laughs> I love it for all of those things. But yeah. just to know what was going on behind the scenes is... Uh, you know, if you're doing well financially at that time, or like if you have fame or attention, then like there can't be trauma. Like right. I think that's, I think people are like way better at accepting that now. I feel like our culture is more oriented toward an understanding of that. You've been very helpful in helping culture get to that place. <laughs> I've done my best. I mean, I also think that like the fact that so many like by percentages, truly like so many more people are famous yeah. than were 20 years ago. Like the problems of fame are like a lot more understandable. And you can get behind the scenes a little bit more than you could before. Yeah. There's just like things have become more, more porous in many ways. And and like, that's really good for understanding more about people who would, you know, before have seemed incredibly unrelatable, you know, like somebody like Jennifer Lawrence having her nudes hacked and distributed. Yeah. God. Yeah. This is such a different thing and it's like a different kind of entertainment, but just like Simone Biles, like now being like, I need to take a break in the face of what people would consider to be one of the more triumphant pieces of my life because my mental health is more important. Yeah. We're having a big moment that I'm sad for Haim didn't happen before he passed. Yeah. There could have been really good things for him and in, in where culture went kind of after he could no longer hang on. Yeah. We know that Grandpa is is a dad in the movie. Uh, a great mm-hmm. a great dad. I love him as a dad. And we know that um Grandpa Gilmore wanted to be a dad. Who is the daddy in this movie? 
it's Kiefer Sutherland because <laughs> that look that he gives, like he just immediately puts this movie in his pocket and then he owns it, you know, the entire time. I cannot believe that he had this kind of like panache and conviction as a performer at this age. Um, I think he's amazing. It's also worth pointing out that his dad, Donald Sutherland, was in the Buffy the Vampire Slayer movie not very long after this. So good. He is so <laughs> good in that role. I also love the fact that this movie came out the same year as Near Dark, which is a dirty Texas version of this movie in a way. Near Dark is um, the Lost Boys as imagined by Cormac McCarthy. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I just wanted to mention, as I mentioned it in the past, but like Alex Winter, who was in this movie, we talked about him earlier, directed a really fantastic documentary called Showbiz Kids, mm. which I would highly, 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 highly recommend for anyone to watch. Our friend Mara Wilson is in it, it talking about her experience. There's a number of other really great experiences. You know, obviously, Alex Winter brings that experience to it as well. So definitely mm -hmm. check that out. But I want to make the sell that Joel Schumacher in this case is the is the daddy. Mm -hmm. There are few directors where you can feel that specific director on every scene every yeah. frame of every scene and this is most certainly one of them and this is the this is a beautiful gift of a you know from a visionary horny daddy and i am i'm grateful for it i'm so grateful too i would also say in keeping with our not so scary halloween lineup i think this movie is suitable for like an 11 year old i feel like it would be scary if you were like an imaginative freddy cat like six-year-old like i was but the amount that you don't see partly due to budget constraints is pretty masterful. And then if you're a teen, it's just, I think, pure fun. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Bring bring your 11 year old. You'll have a great time. Uh, there's a little horniness with the sex, but uh, don't be weird about that with your kids. Yeah. The, and this movie is just it's aesthetically a wonderful experience. I, also, I know that Corey Haim and Corey Feldman both described it as an extremely positive experience. I think Corey Feldman called it one of the best times of his life Aww. making this. And like, that's so special to get to to see that, to see to see everybody. Everyone is doing so great and life does bad things to us. And that's why we all want to be vampires. It, it's a movie <laughs> that proves its own thesis. Exactly. Alright everybody, that is this week's episode of You Are Good. Thank you so much to you for listening to the show. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our wonderful producer uh, who makes the show possible, who edits the show and makes it sound great. Thank you, uh, Carolyn, for doing everything you do. You can find Carolyn's record, The Music of You Are Good, Volume 1, on Bandcamp, and you can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Thank you to Fresh Lesh, who is uh, responsible for the beats that you hear in the uh, interstitial parts of our show at the beginning of the end. Thank you, Lesh, for making the show sound great. Thanks again to our supporters at patreon.com slash you are good for helping make this all possible. Again, look out for bonus episodes there. Uh, find us on Instagram. Find us on Twitter at you are good pod. And we will catch up with you all next week when we talk about Hocus Pocus with our wonderful friend Mara Wilson. All right. See y'all later. <laughs> bye bye.